White Sox. White Sox. Go, 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 go. Call your sons. Call your daughters. Holy cow. You can't put it on the board. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect game. Renato. Grand slam. A White Sox winner and a world championship. Jimenez. He's your hero tonight. Thanks, Cubs. The dynamic duo of Herb Lawrence and Chris Tannehill. Those two are like a tag team, you know. Come with me to Southside of Chicago. Hi, this is Jim Tomey, and the best White Sox talk is on Locked On Sox Podcast with Tanny and Herb. Hello, and welcome back to Locked On Sox. My name is Herb Lawrence. With me this beautiful evening is Chris Tannehill. Chris, how's this evening going for you? Oh, doing great. No Bears football means I get to do fun things and relax around the house, do a little work, do a little cooking. It's good stuff on a Sunday night here when you don't have to worry about watching the Bears. So, yeah, man, just uh, enjoy my weekend. What about yourself, sir? Same thing. No Bears means I can chill out and do whatever I need to do on a Sunday if I need the rest, which is weird. I didn't feel tired this Sunday where the Bears were free, and usually when the Bears are playing, I feel really tired. It's a yes. weird phenomenon. It's exhausting watching them. and I, Like trying to carve out when you, when you work in the sports radio industry and you, and you follow and cover a bad football team, it's three hours for the game and a couple hours after the game to consume post-game quotes, uh, listen to the post-game show, see what people are talking about. It, it takes up a large chunk of your time, and you know I'm glad to, to be working, obviously, especially this year. But you know sometimes it is a little tiring. It's nice to have a, an actual weekend uh, where you can do fun stuff. So yeah, here here to that. But then we'll be exhausted on Tuesday morning watching them on Monday Night Football tomorrow night. So or tonight when you're listening to this. So uh, yeah, so Mailbag Monday. Here we go, and uh, we got a lot to cover. We got a lot of ground to cover. This may end up covering three different episodes tonight. Uh, we've got a lot of good email questions this week uh, in a very newsy White Sox week after Jose Abreu, uh, Abreu wins the MVP award. But also we've got some news in terms of personnel, which we'll get to in just a second. But, of course, I finally get a chance tonight to talk about the commander, Commendatore. Commendatore. You are already checked in. Commendatore. Like a command. I like that. That's respect. Carlton Fisk, episode 72. There is no room for debate here. He's literally the only one in White Sox history to ever wear the jersey. A common theme here as we get into the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, Carlton Fisk, Herb. Um, now, this seems like someone that would be in your wheelhouse of White Sox fandom. You are a, a couple years older than I am, so maybe you have a little more of a recollection of, of seeing Carlton Fisk play, maybe not. But when you think of Carlton Fisk, who was an 11-time All-Star, five times with the White Sox, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2000, uh, do you have any lasting memories of Carlton Fisk in your young baseball-watching life? Um, not good ones, because <laughs> I started watching the White Sox in 1990, and then Fisk was gone like in 92. That's the biggest thing I remember. Him his departure released yeah in, in Cleveland yeah which we'll get to in, in a second yeah it was just horrendous yeah so I don't you know I wasn't a fan during the 80s during the uh uh 83 team and all those things so um I really don't have a good memory of Carlton Fisk all the Carlton Fisk stuff I have are all negative which is weird <laughs> it's, it's you know it's usually off the field stuff yeah so some of it's his doing some of it's other people's doing so yeah, the cornfield yeah, thing uh, I know he's a great huh the cornfield thing yeah I know he's a great player and great player for two organizations which is very rare so 
for Pudge Fist to be, this is only, you know, right. He's got a statue. He's got the name retired. He's in the Hall of Fame as a Red Sox. But most people, I think, know him as a White Sox. And he had people steal his name, Pudge. You know, yeah. you got another Hall of Fame catcher stealing his name. So he's, he's of course, the, the one of the greatest of all time and one of the greatest White Sox of all time, too. Yeah, cultural appropriation for the white man. Can't we have anything? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, of course, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of memories of watching Carlton Fisk, but growing up, like, you know, any, like I said in one of the last episodes, like any, any, any Southside guy, any White Sox fan who, you know, who's like the next generation older than us, Carlton Fisk was usually their favorite player. Like there's always some sort of Carlton Fisk memorabilia. Like he was kind of a hard ass back there, which we'll get to in a second, but he's a, a very important figure in White Sox franchise history. So if you'll, uh, you'll pardon me this opportunity to spin a yarn here so back in the day we all know you've seen Carlton Fisk hit that miraculous home run for the Red Sox in the World Series where he's you know he's waving it fair and it's in the movie Goodwill Hunting and it's really one of the iconic just baseball moments in baseball history you know even though the Red Sox did not win the World Series that year it's like what you think of like you know I, I, I figure like if you're on your deathbed and you're thinking of baseball like all the synapses that fire in your brain Carlton Fisk if you're a baseball fan waving that home run fair is one of the things that'll that'll stick into your mind you see it like all the time still to this day so he was already a Hall of Famer with the Red Sox but then uh, in the uh, 1980 offseason right so Carlton Fisk, there he had a little rift uh, with other players in baseball. You're starting to see guys vie for more money as more money comes into the game. They're trying to get better and bigger contracts. So Carlton Fisk, you know, he didn't have a good relationship with the Red Sox front office at the time. So what happened was uh, there was a little glitch in in the paperwork here that led Carlton Fisk to becoming a White Sox. So what happened was the Red Sox then owner uh, put the new contract in the mail literally one day postmarked after the contractual deadline. So as a result of this little glitch, maybe it was a glitch, maybe it was a middle finger to you saying, oh, yeah, there you go. There's your offer. Uh, but nonetheless, Carlton Fisk was granted free agency, and then he signed a whopping $3.5 million deal with the Chicago White Sox for the 1981 season. And just to put that into context, the White Sox were, you know, they had some success in the 70s, but, you know, this is after Jerry Reinsdorf bought the team, and, you know, they, they were they were not coming off good years, uh, you know, on the field or off. Like, they were kind of a joke with Disco Demolition at the time, and then, you know, the, the, the 70s uniforms, which we all know how Chris Sale felt about, felt about those with the shorts and the collars, and it was a really weird franchise kind of in baseball hell at that time. So Carlton Fisk signs, and they finally had a bona fide player to take them uh, deep into the 1980s and sort of be the face of their of their franchise. He was an MVP candidate uh, back in 83. Um, and, and at that point, the Sox hadn't made the playoffs since the, the 1959 Go-Go Sox. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was, it was a long time uh, coming to, to that point. So he was very important. Uh, landmark moments, Fist caught you know Tom Seaver's 300th win. Um, and then, of course, Hawk moved Carlton Fisk to left field under Tony Larusa as manager. So that's one of my <laughs> that's one of my negative thoughts about. Yeah, I mean, it's not even his fault. So you know, this is kind of lockstep with the Tony Larusa thing. So I found some quotes from spring training of 1986 after Carlton Fisk was moved to left field. Um, 
Here's a quote. Quote, if there's not as much to do and left, there's certainly not as much to do as a designated hitter, Tony LaRusso said. The fact that we haven't talked yet shows he has no pressing need to talk with me, LaRusso said. So they weren't even talking. Like, your, your Hall of Fame catcher is moved to left field and your manager doesn't talk to him about what happened. Um, mm-hmm. I'm satisfied with the way he's going about his work. He'll be happier as he goes along. Um, so, <laughs> obviously, they were trying to save Carlton Fisk. Uh, Little little you know wear and tear on his knees and legs and his back and just you know put him out in the outfield and maybe DH him a little bit, uh, but uh, you know ultimately he went back to catching, and in 1990 he passes Johnny Bench for the most home runs by a catcher. 1993 he breaks Bob Boone's record of games caught with 2,226. The other Pudge Pudge Rodriguez later passed him up. Um, so that was just kind of a funny little footnote is the Larusa element back then in '86. You're talking you know. Uh, you know, way almost 40 years ago, and there's Tony La Russa right in the mix of it, not talking to his Hall of Fame catcher about getting moved to the outfield. Uh, so if that's a sign of things to come, I don't know. But uh, you mentioned in 1993, so the the, the White Sox, you know, in, in July of 93, they had that big ceremony. I remember watching it on, on TV very vividly. You know, they bring out the Harley-Davidson. Bo Jackson comes out of the outfield, gives him the harley and it was sort of like his his goodbye to the fans, which after breaking the record, you know, it was just supposed to be a celebratory occasion after breaking the record for games caught. But it turned out to be a, a, a goodbye of sorts because six days later on a road trip in Cleveland, the White Sox released uh, Carlton Fisk. Just straight up, just goodbye. We're done with you. You have your record. That's it. Now, Carlton Fisk was not a great player at that point by any means. And this was a team that was poised to make the playoffs for the first time in 10 years. But he was uh, notified uh, by his uh, GM at the time, I think it was Ron Schuler. Uh, they knocked on the door and said, you're gone, buddy, uh, basically. They knocked on his hotel room door and said, that's it, while they're in Cleveland. And I just remember watching news reports the day of um, and just showing footage of Fisk in the stands like while the Sox are taking BP, what was that? What was the Cleveland's old stadium? Was that Municipal Stadium before they yeah. had Jacob? Yeah. So he's he's like it's a mistake by the lake. Yeah, absolutely. So he's like sort of in the stands saying goodbye to his teammates that way, you know, after being released. And then of course later on the Sox make the playoffs, and the rumor has it game one of the '93 ALCS, Carlton Fisk tries to come down and wish his teammates good luck, and he's stopped by security and and told to exit. Um, just a, a really really weird end to to a hall of fame career I, you know obviously pudge had his reputation of just being uh being the red ass you know on and off the field but still just you know that goes a long way in terms of the the way people felt about the white Sox organization back then and the way maybe some people still feel about it you know that was just you know this is before social media obviously but just the way the you you send off your Hall of Fame catcher, who you later retire his jersey number back in 1997. So four years later, I was there. Uh, I was there with my dad and my uncle. September 14th, 1997, they retired number 72. It was a very awkward uh, speech made, and it was just a, a weird thing um, to to a guy that you should be, uh, you know basically canonizing at that point but yeah just an odd end to a White Sox career and something that I still look back on like that's kind of inexcusable no matter what happened behind the scenes yeah I'm I mean Jerry Reinsdorf has shown us who he is for a long time to do it so callously like that how he did a Carlton Fisk a guy that like imagine if he did that to I don't know Frank Thomas imagine if he did that to Paul Canerco or any beloved White Sox figure Mark Burley 
people would be furious. And to <laughs> release a man on the road in Cleveland unceremoniously, just buy, get off here, was really, really uh, raw. And it stuck in his crawl for a little bit. That's why, like, it took until 97 for him to, like, really chill down and, all right, cool, fine, I'm good with the White Sox now. Because I think that was kind of part of his uh, – decision-making part process too where if he's going to wear a boston or a white Sox hat by that time where the decision had to be made i think he had already been made up by the white Sox, so it was all good but i'm sure that's stuck in his crawl a little bit longer yeah he was eventually made a team ambassador and you remember seeing him at the ballpark i think a couple times in 05 throwing out a first pitch or what what have you um, I remember, <laughs> I think it was Mr. T and Carlton Fisk were doing a promotional tour. I remember back in those times, like when I was at a game one time, throwing out the first pitch was a very odd combination of people. But uh, Fisk certainly had a bunch of, uh, you know, signature moments in a White Sox uniform opening day, April 10th, 81. Sox are in Boston. This is his first game back with uh, with the new team in Fenway Park, and Carlton Fisk hits the go-ahead home run, eventually win the White Sox a game. You hear that in our open, Harry Carey. Home run will put the White Sox ahead. They're going to give us a run on a ground ball, except probably the third. Yeah, the infield's playing back. Carlton Fisk Don't facing first. Bob Stanley. Hey, go! Get out of back! Please be it is! Holy cow! Carlton Fisk! put the White Sox ahead. A line drive. I was afraid it might not get up high enough. And the White Sox lead. Look at this. Look at this. Holy He's cow. Your face in, Harry. <laughs> he hit a low break. Look at the White Sox dugout. Woo! Hey. Oh, look at Eddie Einhorn. That's what we Charlie Lupin almost jumped out on the field. Einhorn said that's what we bought him for. Whoa. Then you have one of my favorite things ever that you see on on baseball highlight tapes is I'll take you back to August 2nd, 1985 at Yankee Stadium. Carlton Fist tagging out two runners on the same play, what should be, which goes down as like one of the worst uh, third base coaching moments in baseball history, <laughs> right there. That's the only thing I think of when I see that. But you see it, you see it on the uh, on the White Sox intro video. I don't know if they still do it, uh, but it was it was there for a long time as far as one of the great plays in franchise history, one of the cooler moments, and uh, another thing that happened in Yankee Stadium. Uh, mm-hmm. when a lot of people. Was, <laughs> also, <you> get to it. <laughs> of course, this is one of my favorite things, and this is why I love baseball. Okay, because you have two different people from two different worlds, practically culturally, in Carlton Fisk and Deion Sanders. And at one night uh, at Yankee Stadium, uh, those two worlds collided. And this is from Joe Morgan's old radio show. I find found some audio of Carlton Fisk himself telling the story. You know, I don't know if anybody realizes this, but he'd come up to the plate and saunter up the plate like he owned the stadium. And he used to draw a dollar sign in the dirt at home plate. The second time he did that, the first time I went, oh, man, this guy's just crazy. <laughs> he's driving me crazy already, and he, you know, because he's neon, Dion, the blink thing. So he draws a dollar sign in the dirt. He says, so I'm going to... <laughs> so then he hits a little pop-up to the infield, and he just stands there like, uh, oh, how did you, uh, I don't need to run this out because I'm neon Dan, so I it was yelling at him. I said, run the ball out. And he said, huh, what? And I said, run the ball out, and he never makes it to first base. He just 
takes the right and goes into the dugout. And I said, I don't know if anybody that I have ever played against has disrespected the game like he appears to be doing, right. just with his body language and his attitude. And, and he's not even a baseball player, but somebody deserves him some. So he comes up again, and he draws a dollar sign in the dirt again. And you know what he says, Joe? He says, hey, man, the days of slavery are over. And I went, what you? No, I can't say what <laughs> yeah. I said. I stood up. And I walked up on him face to face, and I said, I don't care whether you're black or blue or pink or red. There's a right way and a wrong way to play this game, and you're playing it wrong. And you know something? I'm an old guy, and it offends guys like me. So if you don't start playing this game right, I'm going to kick your ass right here. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, so we got Carlton Fisk and Deion Sanders, uh, one of those moments you hear about, but there's, there's Fisk right there in his own words with the uh, recently departed Joe Morgan. Basically, what you have there is two cartoon character avatars of the old way and like the, the new way back in the 90s. Like Deion Sanders was like the stereotypical athlete of the 90s, like dollar sign, chains, like before things got a little more subtle and stylish, it was like in your face. He had the the, the music video must be the money. He was prime time then, and just you couldn't have two more different people. And when they collide on a baseball field, ooh, I love it still to this day. Yeah, and the whole time Carlton Fisk was talking, I'm just picturing Jake Taylor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I'm just That's like, oh my god, call. Jake Taylor. It's so I never put so that much. parallel together before. I never put that together, but like aesthetically, they look similar. Kind knees. of similar, yes, yeah, knees, similar personality. And now I got to go back and look after this podcast is done to see if that's who Jake Taylor was was based off of. That that's a really good call. Yeah, that's all I was hearing. I was like, oh my god, Jake Taylor, uh, Tom Berridge, a great actor. Uh, but yeah, I think um, I think of those plays. So I the the tagging the two guys out, of course, is a positive thing. I think about the the seventy five home run, of course, uh, and Goodwill Hunting too. And then, you know, the, the Dion thing, I don't know, like, you know, drawing a dollar sign into the, <laughs> it's a bit much, no? the dirt is, 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 it's negligible. It's <laughs> irritating, but it's also, he, he, Carlton made sure that he was offended by something that was very <laughs> innocuous. Who cares? If he's good, if he's concentrated on that, he's not sending you a message that, not no, the slavery thing. Yeah. I would have been in his grill too, like Carlton was. And I'm glad he did get in his face. And so, yeah. And he's, I get his, hey, run this, run the ball out type of thing, but he's not on my team. Don't run the ball out. I'd love I that. Yeah. Chill right here. Let that ball drop and let you get embarrassed. I, I'd I love if love Byron Buxton didn't run a ball out. Oh, my God. It would be the best thing of all time. Well, he doesn't have so to run him out because he hits him out of the park exclusively against the White Sox. Past our left fielders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, that that's that's good shit right there. Um, but yeah, so here we are, episode seventy two. When you when you talk about about a guy that's on the Mount Rushmore of White Sox greats, I figure uh, give you guys a little history lesson because I know many of you guys and gals are younger than than we are, and so sometimes it's still helpful to to go back and read about a lot of the stuff that I didn't know about as far as the the technicality and the and the paperwork. But yeah, if a, if a guy drew a dollar sign in the dirt today, you'd be like. What an asshole. <laughs> like, they're all millionaires. <laughs> right? Like, if it happened today, wouldn't it be like, oh, look at this guy's kind of a jerk. But also, you have to look at things in a in a, in a lens that that was like 30 years ago. So, but yeah, that, there he is. That's the, that's the commander right there. That's Pudge, Carlton Fisk, episode 72. All right. So, we got some news here, Herbie. The White Sox finally made an addition. They've got a new pitching coach. He's got some big baseball pants to fill. 
Sliding in for Don Cooper, we have Ethan Katz. Now, as of right now, Sunday night, this uh, story is not official. We have not received a White Sox press release about it. At least I don't recall seeing one over the weekend, but you're starting to see new stories pop up. White Sox have hired Ethan Katz. Now, who is Ethan Katz, you ask? Well, he was born born on the 4th of July of 1983. And that's right, folks. The high school baseball coach of Lucas Giolito is younger than the two of us. <laughs> and, he's, <laughs> and he's on the White Sox coaching staff. Uh, but what helps Amazing. him is his current manager is ancient, so it all balances out. A uh, little, little resume here for Ethan Katz. Like I said, he coached uh, Giolito. Max Free, Jack Flaherty, back at back at uh, oh, black at Harvard Westlake, back at Harvard Westlake High School. Black at Harvard Westlake, <laughs> yeah, that that too. Um, back uh, when when Lucas Giolito, Max Freed, and Jack Flaherty were all in high school, and then he was able to springboard that uh, into a gig with the Angels, uh, managing their winter ball team, I believe, and then working his way up through the ranks of, of various organizations, and eventually he winds up with the San Francisco Giants, where in 2019. He was the assistant pitching coach uh, for the San Francisco Giants. So uh, this is a guy that it's a young. He's a young guy who hopefully you have a lot of guys on your young staff here. Hopefully someone who they can relate to and he can sort of unlock. He already unlocked Giolito basically, and I'll get to that in a second. But you're hoping that he can get extract something. Uh, out of these young pitchers, someone like Dylan Cease is the first one that comes to mind, someone who's got a, a curious analytical mind, and you hope Ethan Katz is someone who can get in there and and, and bridge those gaps and, and able to make it translate onto the field. Uh, do you have any things, good, bad, or indifferent, any feelings about this Ethan Katz hire? If one of your star pitchers, your ace pitcher, wants a guy on your staff and is the one who gives that reco, you listen to him, and especially with the stories that have been told about Ethan helping those three uh, major league pitchers now and while they're in high school, and then him going back to get a little information for him in the offseason that turned Lucas uh, Giolito's career around. Yeah, let's go and get this guy. Um, that's what pitching coaches is all about. I mean, for the most part, these guys are pretty done, you know, as far as development, but you need a pitching coach to be there to make sure mechanics are right and see if they see something that's off to help them with that was something that will make them better. And it seems as Ethan Katz already has done that to this major league pitching staff, especially the ace. So I'm a hundred percent in, I don't feel as bad as losing that guy who went to Michigan or who was a Michigan coach and went to Detroit with uh, AJ Hinch. I don't feel that bad now that we got a young uh, guy that was in the in the know and everybody was uh, interested in him. So he's you know coached I think for the Angels and now and the Giants and now the White Sox. So it's very uh, very good to know that we got a guy that is pretty uh, highly sought after. So I guess the way I think about this is, you know, we talked about this La Russa factor early on, how if you have a, a young staff that can sort of balance out the manager a little bit and you, you can, you know, a little more diverse staff, either, you know, uh, with ethnicities or diverse from, from young to old, basically a good mix of people from different backgrounds, I think would be well served for this White Sox coaching staff. So if, if La Russa is going to remain the manager, and I think the, as, as, days past here I have no reason to believe that he's not going to be like you know if after you remove the remotion like the farther we get from the the second DUI news I have a feeling that they were just hoping this news goes away and we said they're not gonna address anything for another almost three weeks now so if Tony LaRusso is your manager I, I do find it a little more palatable that you have someone younger 
on the on the coaching staff that can relate to already has a track record of relating to guys on the current roster. And let me read you these quotes. So back in this is Mother's Day of last year, 2019, Lucas Giolito, after his bad 2018, he comes out of the box, you know, mixed results here, you know, gives up a couple runs on opening day to the Royals. And then gives up five runs, four runs. Then he starts getting to a little bit of a groove. Um, and then finally it culminates with a, a great outing up in Toronto. I remember this game because James McCann got hit in the balls uh, yet again. <laughs> I remember that's the one thing I remember about that game. But So Lucas Giolito, seven innings pitch, eight strikeouts, gives up just one run. And this is from Scott Merkin's game story on MLB.com after that game, a victory over the Blue Jays. Gilito said it was kind of weird. I didn't go into the offseason thinking my arm action's too long. I basically went to my pitching guru, Ethan Katz. He was my pitching coach in high school, and now he's the assistant coach for the San Francisco Giants. And I obviously had a rough season last year, so I said, I know you suggested things in the past, and I never really bought into it, but whatever you got for me, I'm doing it. Taking Katz's advice, Giolito began a weighted ball program specifically focused on a few move on few movements, and within two weeks of trying to figure it out, his arm action shortened without any conscious thought. I never had to consciously think about what my arm was doing, Giolito said. It was a result of the work I was putting in into the weighted ball program, essentially throwing weighted balls against the wall. I don't know the science behind it, but if your arm is too long and you're not on time, it's a weighted ball, so it's not going to feel good. It forces you to be quick, compact, short, and just kind of took over. So the encouraging stuff, this is tangible results that you're already seeing. Ethan Katz playing out into Lucas Giolito, and, and you're hoping Giolito is already passing those things down to his teammates. But now you have a guy that's a little younger, a little more relatable, a little more analytically minded, so he can bring this information. And now you have someone who, uh, a student of his, that's already worked. And, you know, obviously with Jack Flaherty and Max Freed, guys in the league who have had success under his tutelage, this is this is just nothing but, but a good thing, I think, for the White Sox. And, you know, hopefully this this means that, you know, guys like Dylan Cease or Ronaldo Lopez can take that next step this year because I don't know if the Sox are going to get their right fielder and someone in the starting rotation. It's going to, you know, it's, it depends on whatever lines up for them. If they get a right fielder, they may have to just live with what they have in the rotation, which is kind of scary thinking about. But maybe someone like Ethan Katz can make the difference here. So overall, I like this hire. If you, when you get younger, and it doesn't always work, I think of Tommy Hadovy on the north side as a guy who was, was brought in with, with the same kind of uh, reputation and being a really smart guy, relatable guy. But all, all it matters is the, the, the guys on the field. So, again, we'll have to wait and see what the roster looks like, and maybe we won't even be talking about him uh, being great because maybe Trevor Bauer is also <laughs> in your rotation, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's why they're better. But, yeah, so this is a, uh, you know, kudos to the White Sox for making this move. I like it, and it's good to see finally – that things are, are in motion here and they're not waiting on whatever happens to Tony La Russa before they start making moves. Like it's important to, to build your staff so guys can can reach out a little bit and sort of get to know the guys. And, you know, guys are going to begin their offseason program soon. So it's important to have your pitching coach there at the forefront to, you know, sort of implement a plan or at least uh, gauge where they're at, where their progress is. So, yeah, uh, job well done by the White Sox, I believe, uh, in hiring Ethan Katz. All right, so uh, we're already uh, well into this thing here. Before we get to the mailbag, there was one other thing. Speaking of Tony Larusa, one other thing I wanted to get to. This was from Friday. Jose Abreu was making the media rounds, and uh, you know, you know, making his MVP uh, media sessions. You know, talking with the scores Lawrence Holmes, and then he did a Zoom call, and he talked about Tony Larusa more in depth. I think when we last left you guys on Friday's episode. 
uh, or Thursday night's episode, I should say, you know, Jose Abreu had not spoken yet really to uh, Tony La Russa in depth. Jose Abreu had comments about him, how he was looking forward to playing for him, but he really loved Rick Renteria. So what did Jose Abreu have to say about Tony La Russa? Well, Tony La Russa reached out and Jose Abreu got counseled by a, a Hall of Fame player, and you guys might be surprised to hear this, but I was certainly encouraged. But here's Jose Abreu on who he talked to about Tony La Russa after winning his MVP award. La Russa has been a, a, one of the greatest managers in the history of the sport. I knew that. And, and, you know, that's something that you have to respect. Uh, I think, you know, we, we're going to do good with him. When we hire him, I, I reached out to Pujols, to Albert Pujols. And I asked him about La Russa because La Russa was his manager uh, during his time in, in, uh, in, in St. Louis. And, and Pujols just told me that he was a, a, a great manager, you know, an outstanding uh, person, a, a manager that I would like to play for. And I'm just looking for it, uh, looking forward to it. Then, you know, I, I know that you know, things happen and, and this is a, a free country. You, have, you can have an opinion but, and, and, and you have to respect uh, each, each one opinion. But for us, as a baseball player, we have to appreciate what we have. And, you know, right now he is our manager. And like I said before, his, I mean, his, his record as a manager in the big, in the big leagues is, is one of the best. Then you are going to have the chance to play for uh, one of the greatest managers in the history of the game. So that's Billy Russo, the translator for Jose Abreu, and I should note that Tony La Russa did reach out to Jose Abreu after winning the MVP trophy, thank God uh, for that, but um, uh, are you encouraged when you hear uh, Albert Pujols weighing in uh, with some positive uh, feedback for Jose Abreu to, 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 to nosh on over the offseason? Yeah, I mean, it was never going to be Tony La Russa and the um, – on the field product for the most part for me. I mean, I don't, hopefully he doesn't bunt anymore or a ton like Ricky Renteria did in 2019. Um, and he doesn't do old school stuff like that. Um, the White Sox have enough talent to overcome whatever Tony LaRusso does in the dugout. Yeah. And so uh, Albert Pujols had a great career under him. So I don't think a negative word could be spoken. I want to talk to somebody who wouldn't have a positive uh, opinion of Tony, like uh, Scott Rowland, like they had headbutting times. Talk to Pudge. We just talked about Pudge Fisk and him not talking for a while there. So ask him, ask an old school player like that. Ask people who had difficulties with them. If they, at the end of the day, like I think Scott Rowland would say, yeah, we didn't see eye to eye, but I thought he was a good manager. I'll be impressed. Yeah, we heard from Matt Holiday on the score a couple weeks ago who, who loved playing for him. Of course, part of that World Series team in 2011, that last World Series team for Tony La Russa. So, yeah, I have not seen many people speak out against it. The vibe I'm getting, quite frankly, about Tony La Russa as a manager is this. Like, he, he'll, for the most part, he'll stay out of your way. Like, if you're a Hall of Fame player like Albert Pujols, he's not going to get in your way and mess your shit up. You know what I mean? Like, he, 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 I never heard a story yet about Tony La Russa stepping in and, and ruining what someone was trying to do. So I think that's encouraging in, in that regard. I, you know, I think this is your, your typical case of, of a guy that just give him the right information and he'll, he'll press the right buttons, you know, and he'll, he'll stay out of the way as long as you have the talent on the team. So I think as far as strictly as a manager, like I don't have a lot to worry about Tony La Russa. I stand by that. I think eventually if he's the manager, 
you know, he'll get to know the guys in the clubhouse and he'll stay out of the way. That was my gut at the time, and I'm still holding to that. But if you're wondering if maybe Albert Pujols would like to join old Tony on his coaching staff as a bench coach, maybe uh, a respected uh, figure. Uh, well, Albert Pujols still has $30 million left. One more year left on his contract with the angels, <laughs> $30 million, dude, for 2021. And in 2022, Everybody was bad at the time he signed that shit. <laughs> Albert Pujols, contract with the, with the angels, um, <laughs> 12 million. This is from 2012 on. 12 million, 16 million, 23 million, 24 million, 25 million, 26 million, 27 million, 28 million, 29 million, and in 2021, 30 million, and he'll be a free agent in 2022. So, no doubt in my mind, he'll be a White Sox in 2022. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like leadership, veterans, skills. Yeah, oh, yeah. We finally get our guy. Uh, but, yeah, like, who was like, man, let's backload this contract because of course he's going to be better at the end of this bitch and it won't look bad at all at the end of this contract man what a stroke of genius oh god people are so dumb <laughs> but hey to get albert pujols they get players man i i gotta tip the cap to Artie moreno there's no cheap in him there's never a time we're like man this Artie moreno is out there stingy with the but the money no he goes out and gets people now the people he gets might be questionable he needs to go out and get a pitcher once in a while, not just hitters. Come on, Artie. Help your mans out out there. I want to see Mike Trout in the playoffs ever. Now, if you're wondering about the playoffs and the Angels, um, if Albert Pujols is the World Series MVP, he's got an escalator in his uh, contract. He wins a uh, – well, not doesn't win. He earns $100,000 if he's World Series MVP. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, wow. Which is a, really just a drop in the bucket at that point. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, man. But, yeah, there, there you have it. Jose Abreu uh, talking to Albert Pujols, one of the all-time greats, about his manager, Tony La Russa. Well, here we are, Herbie. Uh, we're about a half hour into this thing, and we haven't gotten to a single email, so we have to make a decision here. Do we just drop this as its own episode on a Sunday night, give give people a little something uh, uh, to, to wet their palate before the mailbag? What do you think? Yes. Yes, right. let's do that. All right. So we'll do that. So, so apologies for any mentions of a mailbag here, but there was enough news to get to uh, for this edition of Locked on White Sox, and uh, we're, we're going to record. I'm not even going to say ask Herbie to give out the email address because we're going to uh, do two mailbag episodes here in just a bit. So uh, that's all I got tonight. Uh, hope you guys have had a great weekend, and hopefully this will uh, give you something nice to listen to on Sunday night as you as you as you come down and and uh, brace yourself for a, another crazy week in White Sox world. Okay, so that's Chris Tannehill at Chris Tannehill is his Twitter. Mine Ecknerwall twenty three, and the show is locked on socks uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. So for Chris Tannehill, I am Herb Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this episode of Locked on Socks.